the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Remember the stark cruelty of the Trump administration's immigration policy? The rhetoric, the photos of caged children, the brutal indifference to our nation's immigrant past. Caitlin Dickerson of The Atlantic has written a new piece about the intentionality of that policy in those programs, something that until now hasn't really been made manifest. She joins today to discuss. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Detroit Today is supported by Michigan School of Psychology in Farmington Hills, educating psychologists today who will transform our world tomorrow. Learn more at msp.edu. Good day and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. As always, thanks for tuning in. So go back in time just a little bit to 2017 when President Donald Trump takes office and starts to make good on some of the rhetoric and promises that he made while campaigning to be president. One of the really intentional policies that Trump's reign ushered in was the zero-tolerance policy his administration instituted at America's southern border. The plan literally separated children and parents from one another while they were trying to cross into America and apply for citizenship. Trump was really flying in the face of our long-standing policy of welcoming the tired, the poor, and the huddled masses. And he campaigned on and operated high office with rhetoric of pointed cruelty to immigrants, particularly those from Latin America, from the Middle East, and from Africa. This policy separated thousands of kids from their parents, as I said. And you may even remember hearing recorded screams from children who were sitting in cages at various detention centers. It was a really, really heart-wrenching image, and it was a time when I think all of us started to question what it meant to be an American, what it meant to be part of a country that is built on immigration and immigrants in the 2020s. The cruelty, as has been said many times, was the point. This was an administration that resented immigrants and immigration, and their policies reflected that over and over and over. Later in the hour, we're going to explore how Americans feel right now about immigration, where we sit on the issue. But before we get there, we want to explore how this intentionally harmful and violent immigration policy came to be and how it affected those who were part of it. A new report really highlights this. Atlantic staff writer Caitlin Dickerson uncovered how the zero tolerance policy came into being, who allowed it to happen, what the consequences were for families who were trying to cross into America, and what our immigration system looks like now. She is with us to talk about how America ever let something like this happen. Caitlin Dickerson, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. So your story actually starts in Grand Rapids, Michigan, focusing on a therapist for children who are being processed through the immigration system. What's the role of the therapist in this situation? What are they saying and doing with teens as part of our immigration system, and specifically talk about how this is related to this child separation policy that uh, we saw unfold during the Trump administration. Sure. So the way the American immigration system handles children in federal custody is a little bit complicated. So stay with me for a minute as Mm -hmm. I walk you through it. 
When children arrive at the southern border, um, typically alone as unaccompanied minors, and we're talking about teenagers, um, they first are apprehended by the border patrol, but then because they are young, because they are especially vulnerable and actually not legally allowed to be in jail, they're transferred into the custody of a separate federal agency, the Health and Human Services Department, which oversees, again, children, migrant children in American government custody who are going through immigration proceedings to find out whether they're going to be allowed to stay in the United States, you know, if they qualify for some sort of protection like asylum or not, and whether they're ultimately going to be deported. The Health and Human Services Department contracts with organizations across the country that actually run the shelters where those children are held. And, and among them are is this organization called Bethany Christian Services that has offices, as you said, in Grand Rapids. So my story begins with a woman named Cynthia Quintana, who's a therapist for Bethany Christian Services. And she's typically treating these teenagers who've just crossed the border on their own in an act of desperation. You know, the, the whole concept of being an unaccompanied minor is really mind boggling to a lot of people. And, and I think that makes sense because it is just so harrowing and, and scary and dangerous to, to cross the border alone. Typically those kids are coming from places where they face daily threats of violence, where their families couldn't put food on the table. Many of them have been, you know, sought after by gangs for one reason or another. Um, you know, kids end up in Central America in particular being targeted um, and asked or basically told they have to join a gang. And, and if they don't, that, you know, they'll, they'll be killed. And so that often is an impetus for leaving um, and, and heading to the United States to, to kind of hide from that threat. So that's the type of patient that Cynthia Quintana in Grand Rapids is used to treating. But all of a sudden in 2017, as I document, she starts seeing these very young kids show up in her office for appointments, hmm. you know, kids as young as two and three years old who can't explain to her how they crossed the border, who they crossed the border with. Those who are old enough to talk are telling her, you know, no, I crossed the border with my mother or my father, but we were separated. And that was very jarring and disturbing to her because it's not the type of child she's used to seeing. And that's because family separations had begun, but they were not publicly announced for about a year. They were effectively done in secret. So let's talk about how this child separation policy started, where exactly it began, how it took shape over time, and how it reflected the things I was talking about in the open. This was a president who campaigned against the idea of welcoming immigrants from certain parts of the globe, talked specifically about immigrants from Mexico and how dangerous he thought they were, how unwelcome they would be in an America that, that he was running. Uh, go back to the beginning here and talk about how we, how we get to this place and how different that was from the way we did things before. So throughout American history, and I've gone back to the very beginning and, and looked at you know, the, the way that immigration policies have changed over time, you know, we, we have as a country had, you know, in, in decades and centuries past, very harsh and very cruel immigration policies, but never has the United States government actually taken children away from their parents as a way to discourage migration. The way that came to be under the Trump administration, it's actually a, a reflection of a confluence of, of different people with different motivations, right? So you have Trump, President Trump at the time, you mentioned campaigned on this idea of really shutting down the borders as much as possible. Not, you know, as we know, and as my reporting showed, because he really cared all that much about the issue or had, you know, longstanding views on it, but because when he started to talk about immigration during his campaign rallies, he found that it was very popular. Mm. The speeches that he were, was making, though, were written by Stephen Miller, who turned out to be Trump's chief immigration advisor in the White House. And Stephen Miller was someone who for years, um, had worked initially for Jeff Sessions in the Senate um, as a writer and a communications operative, you know, just sort of laser focused on trying to curtail immigration to the United States. For Miller, this really is a kind of ideological goal um, and one that he kind of will stop at nothing to pursue. Um, when it comes to sealing the border and stopping immigration, especially immigration from countries that are predominantly black and brown, as you mentioned, um, but then you also have this other group of people who I spent a lot of time trying to understand 
in the reporting of this story because you know covering family separations in real time as I did, um, it was clear to me this policy was implemented by hundreds, if not thousands, of government workers whose bosses, you know, at the highest levels of the bureaucracy, also had to be in meetings, had to be aware that this was coming down. And so I wanted to figure out how the Trump administration, you know, a sort of apathetic president, um, a really aggressive set of advisors got the bureaucracy on board as well. And it turns out that there were a lot of, you know, very ambitious people who saw an opportunity to basically further their career uh, by latching on to what the White House was pushing so hard. And it's really all those different groups and different sets of motivations that allowed this to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And so let's go back then to Grand Rapids, where the story starts with this therapist who is now seeing children who were uh, the subjects of, of, of these policies. And talk about, I guess, the terror that these children feel and experienced, uh, what this was like for them day in and day out and what it looks like now to try to make sense of what happened to them. So the the memories of Cynthia and her colleagues in Grand Rapids who tried to help separated children are still very visceral, still very present for them today. Um, and, and the interviews were very intense and, and very painful and, and very tearful on their part. Um, you know, it's important to point out that these are therapists, social workers, people who have professional training in treating children who are dealing with trauma. So they have a baseline um, sort of immunity to um, working with kids who are coming from really harrowing backgrounds. It's it's their job. But the separated children, they told me, were struggling at a level they just had not encountered before. And they felt really inequipped to deal with it because of all the, you know, the things that science have told us over the years about the, the damage that separating a child from their parent can do. Um, this is something that researchers have known for a very long time is, you know, deeply emotionally traumatizing, but it's also um, stifling developmentally. Um, you know, when a kid is developing their attachment system and, and when their brain is growing, um, to go through such a trauma really has, in a lot of cases, lifelong consequences. So one of the first children um, who was separated that Cynthia told me about was a little boy. She said he was about three years old, um, seemed kind of mature for his age, but but was too young to really articulate, you know, again, who he crossed the border with, how he'd ended up in her care. She would ask him questions and he just kind of stared back at her blankly, but was relatively calm. And so Cynthia had to go on a reporting expedition to figure out where this boy's father was, because this is back when family separations were being done in secret. So she spends a couple of weeks reaching out to contacts in the government to try to trace where this child's father is. And she eventually finds him in a detention center. She gets the father on the phone, she says, and, you know, just still trying to figure out for herself what, what's what's going on. You know, she has him on speakerphone and says, you know, hello, sir, your son is here with me. Please, please say hello. He can hear you. And she started to hear the father, his, his voice just kind of catching. He couldn't actually eke out a, a word. Um, and it kind of clicked for her that, you know, something horribly wrong had happened, that this was not a family where a child was taken away, you know, for the child's safety, but this was a family that, that loved each other and wanted to be together. Eventually, um, you know, the, the boy cried out for his father and the two of them began crying and screaming. She said so loud that, that Cynthia's colleagues actually rushed to her office to try to figure out what was going on. You know, the father just kept repeating, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, over and over again. He, of course, had no idea this could happen when they crossed the border together because none of it was was publicized in advance. And from there, he just said to Cynthia, you know, who are you? You know, where is my son? They came and took him in the middle of the night while we were sleeping. You know, what do I tell his mother? Um, and so it just, I think, helps to show the very raw state that these children and families arrived in, in government custody. Um, and, you know, as a result of that, they're still very much dealing with the consequences of this today. Yeah. 
I'm talking with Caitlin Dickerson. She is a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of a new piece about the secret history of the U.S. government's family separation policy. Uh, the piece is called We Need to Take Away the Children. Uh, we're talking about the early days of the administration of Donald Trump when the new president in 2017 started to make good on some of the promises, started to fulfill some of the rhetoric he indulged during the campaign uh, that suggested he would pursue a very different kind of immigration policy with regard to certain countries uh, here in the United States. Uh, it turned out that uh, a very cruel policy of separating children from their parents at the southern border with Mexico uh, was something that they were planning to do, started to do in secret. And then, of course, uh, all of us learned about the consequences of that policy much later. Uh, we want to hear from you during the conversation as well. Uh, give us a call and let us know. Do you remember this child separation policy uh, that unfolded during the Trump administration. Uh, do you think we should uh, allow administrations to administer such violent policies? Uh, what, who do you think is responsible for the way our immigration system is now broken, uh, largely because of uh, some of the things that the Trump administration decided to do. Also, give us a sense of what you think would be a more humane immigration process around particularly the southern border here uh, in the United States. Of course, there are lots of problems with uh, the way that uh, people legally or illegally uh, try to cross that border. And uh, there are lots of really devastating consequences for people, both children and adults. Uh, also give us a sense of what you think our immigration system overall ought to look like. Uh, a little later in the program, we are going to talk specifically about where Americans' views on immigration stand right now, uh, how they have changed over the past uh, over the past few years. As always, the number here on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the program that way. Before we get to our listeners, Caitlin, I, I want to have you talk about what the explanations were for uh, for this policy, what, what the defense of it was from uh, from the administration? Uh, how do how did the people who made this policy say that it made sense and that it wasn't cruel? But also, were there other alternatives that they considered that would have been less violent or or less cruel? And they chose this. Uh, this over those for, for some reason? Mm -hmm. So um, to your first question, the explanations and defenses of family separation, they changed a lot over the course of the Trump administration. I tried to trace that history. So again, for the first year, the explanation and defense was this isn't happening. It's not real. Even when I and other reporters would go to the administration and say, you know, we've been notified of this case. Here's the information on the parent. Here's the information on the child. Why did you separate? Um, they would either say we didn't separate or they would say it was something that we had to do for a, chi a child's safety, even though there were pilot programs going on that are well documented showing that this was not, you know, these separations didn't take place for child safety reasons. They took place as a deterrent strategy to try to limit border crossings in one area or another. When zero tolerance is finally made public, that was the, you know, the name that the Trump administration gave to this policy. Then the explanation and defense changed and, and it became this argument that, you know, we don't actually want to separate children from their parents. What we want to do is criminally prosecute any parent who crosses the border with their child, even if they're doing so to seek asylum. You know, we're doing that as a deterrent strategy. And the unfortunate result of those prosecutions are that the families had to have been separated. Um, we know that's not an accurate rendering of the, the justification, you know, and the, the history leading up to the implementation of the policy. And there's really evidence before, during, and after family separations proving that that's true. Starting with Tom Homan, um, who was the head of ICE under the Trump administration, who 
came up with the idea to separate families and told me that was his initial goal to lots of documentation leading up to the implementation, again, where family separations are clearly articulated as a goal um, and, and as a as an outcome of the policy, um, documents that even warn that, you know, if these regional programs were to be expanded and, and separations were to be implemented nationwide, that you would expect, you know, parents and children to get lost from one another, um, you know, for it to be very difficult to try to bring families back together. And then even after the when the when the policy is being implemented, there are emails showing people, high-level officials within the, the components of the Homeland Security Department that were implementing this policy who were trying to block children and parents from being reunified after prosecution, which again undercuts this argument that, you know, the government was only seeking to prosecute, not to separate. Well, then why were there government officials working to keep those families apart after the prosecution was complete? Um, your second question was whether less harsh policies were considered, and mm -hmm. they were. Um, you know, policies that had precedent. You know, I talk in the story about the pitfalls of the concept of deterrence and, and you know, implementing um, consequences or punishment to try to minimize migration. It's been shown over time to, to not be very effective. Um, it's marginally effective when you compare it to things like investing in, you know, the economic and social safety infrastructure in Central America. But but, you know, sort of setting that aside, there were less harsh deterrent strategies that had been pursued under previous administrations that were on the table. And the Trump administration decided not to pursue those, even though they had been, you know, they had precedent um, that they were legal um, and that they were less harsh. You know, they instead opted for this, you know, really harshest implementation of deterrence that we've seen in American history. Okay, coming up, we are going to continue this conversation with uh, Caitlin Dickerson of The Atlantic. Uh, we're going to continue talking about this immigration policy that the Trump administration embraced in the early days uh, of it being in charge of immigration in this country. And then we're going to get to you on the phones and on social. Sarah outside Detroit and Samela in Detroit. Uh, we will get to you first. Uh, if you want to join as well. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. We've also got a number of social media comments already to put into the mix here. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag us. Uh, talk to us that way about what you think about this policy uh, in 2017 and what you think about immigration right now in our country. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. WDET is your place for open dialogue. The music you love. Real news and in-depth analysis. And cultural experiences. The sound of Detroit. 1019 WDET is your public radio station. This is Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson. And as always, thanks for tuning in. Caitlin Dickerson is with us. She's a staff writer at The Atlantic and author of a new piece about the secret history of the U.S. government's family separation policy called We Need to Take Away uh, the children. Uh, we're talking about that policy uh, that was debuted by the Trump administration in the early days uh, of President Trump being in office, uh, the things that happened as a consequence of that policy, uh, but also how we ended up embracing a policy that was so cruel to the people who were the subject of it. Uh, I want to hear from you as well about uh, immigration. What do you think about that policy? Uh, were you surprised that the United States indulged a policy that was so cruel? Uh, do you think that immigration policy now is where it should be uh, in terms of welcoming people, in terms of making sure that people can come safely uh, to our country? Um, what would you change about the immigration system? A little later in the program, we are going to talk a, a little more about Americans' views on immigration now and how they're a little different than they were 
before the Trump administration. Uh, but you can join us uh, on the phones here. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we'll work you into the conversation that way. Uh, Jen on Twitter says, immigrant hopeful is the wrong phrasing. These people were requesting asylum, as was their right. They were hoping for uh, refuge. Um, Ed on uh, Twitter says uh, the statement from some at the time that this was an Obama policy that Trump continued was inflammatory, also uh, was incorrect. Uh, Ed, you're right about that. Uh, Geraldine on Twitter says, thank you for covering this important heartbreaking issue. Apart from its cruelty, Trump's policy was in violation uh, of international law. Uh, Let's go to the phones here and start with uh, Samilla in Detroit. Uh, Welcome to the show. How you doing, guys? Good morning. Hi, how are you? So just to make uh, it uh, brief that the policy that has been uh, adapted by the previous administration not only hurt the families and uh, their children, it did hurt also the U.S. economy because it eliminated a lot of kinds of uh, visa that could be utilized to fulfill a lot of positions that needed to be filled into the workforce system. Plus, it hurts and changed the image about the United States as a country that respects laws and constitution and allow people to start. This is a country built by immigrants and started by immigrants. So what's happened is like a shame. What's happened before is not reflecting the true uh, story about the United States. Mm. Uh, Samela, I'm, I'm glad you called and and shared that point of view. You're absolutely right. Um, Caitlin, uh, what he's saying reminds me that, again, this policy fit into a much broader approach to immigration that flew in the face, for instance, of the things that Samela is talking about, the need for uh, uh, for immigration to help with, with our workforce, uh, the, the, the need for economic growth. That's fueled by by immigration. The Trump administration's take on all of these things was that more important was um, this sense of um, I don't know what you would what you would call it uh, you know cultural denigration I guess of 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 immigrants. I mean the, the, this was about making immigrants the bad guys because it was a popular it was a popular position to take with with parts of the Republican Party, and every other kind of consideration got, got swept aside. That's right. And your your caller rightly points out that, you know, the, the limitations that the Trump administration imposed on immigration to the United States, they were very vast. And so we saw harsher enforcement within the United States and at the border. But we also, as he alluded to, saw Um, a lot of restrictions added to employment-based visas that really slowed down those processes, family-based visas as well, and just kind of frustrated this entire system that, um, you know, as you well know, is already deeply backlogged. There are a lot of people who'd like to get into the United States, and we have a system that moves very, very slowly um, in terms of reviewing those applications, even those of people who, who are perfectly qualified. And, you know, I think it's a reflection of the fact that Throughout our history, frankly, you know, there have been many moments in the United States where debate over immigration policy has not been really informed by the facts. So, you know, you have, you know, you're going to get to this later um, in the day, it sounds like, but, you know, recent polling showing that a majority of Americans feel like the United States is being invaded, for example. You know, that's sort of an emotional reaction um, to, you know, an idea of people coming to the United States and, and maybe a, a feeling that individually people have about, you know, their opportunities in life versus, you know, what they what they thought they might be or what they hoped that they might be and, and looking for someone to blame. Um, but there's there's a lot of evidence and research that shows that immigration, you know, can really, you know, as you both pointed out, um, strengthen the economy, open up opportunities for work in the United States um, for Americans alongside um, newcomers to the country. And so, you know, you talked about the brokenness of our immigration system. And I think that a big culprit there is just the sort of lack of information that um, politicians tend to invoke, you know, real data and, and meaningful 
numbers. Um, when they're talking about immigration policy, it tends to be this emotional discussion where you have um, progressives on the one side talking about, um, you know, the humanitarian considerations, which are which are very real and which are in fact part of our laws. I mean, written into our laws is our protections for people who who need them um, and who are seeking refuge in the United States. But then on the Republican side, you know, you've talked a lot today about Trump's campaign rallies and and his speeches, and right. So he in those speeches was invoking this kind of fear, was talking about this general, you know threat um, that was very vague and, and not fact-based imposed by immigrants. And so, you know, voters, I think, are really left with, with a dearth of, of hard facts to make decisions based on. And, and especially, you know, at a time when, our, when we, we've struggled, at times when we struggle as a country economically, um, you know, we struggle in moments like the pandemic and, and people really feel like, you know, our country is dealing with so much, the idea of, you know, helping other people feels like too much, I think, sometimes for people. And, and that can be in part because, you know, those individuals just don't realize that actually there's evidence suggesting that in some cases, you know, that, that immigration, you know, from high skilled immigration to um, people who want to come in and work blue collar jobs, you know, can actually really strengthen opportunities here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Samela, uh, really appreciate the call and uh, and your comments. Let's go next to Sarah outside of Detroit. Sarah, welcome to the show. Hi, Stephen. Hi. Hi, I just wanted to share um, a very pale comparison um, of an immigration situation. It was here in the Detroit office. We were applying for our green cards. Mm. Um, but just to kind of show the pervasiveness of their disrespect for children's mental health, I am white applying for a green card from Canada. Um, and they had no qualms about taking my child that was under 10 years old to take them separately into the office while I waited out in the, in the waiting room. And you're in a situation where you don't want to make a fuss, but you insist in saying, no, I want to stay with my child. They're a minor. Mm -hmm. um, you're taking them into this room with someone I've never met to take their ID. And, and, Absolutely no, like you you don't want to make a, a big shouting match in front of, you know, these people that are basically deciding your life, of mm -hmm. whether or not you're going to stay in this country. Um, and no, there was absolutely no question that I was going to stay with my child. They had to take him separately um, into this administrative office. And even at that level here in Detroit, it was completely acceptable to separate and, and again, I'm not comparing myself with the trauma that's happening in the South, which is sure. heartbreaking. Yeah, but but it, just, it, yeah. it goes all the way through the administration. It's not just. So, Sarah, what what era was this? That this was just a few years ago here yeah. in the Detroit office. They yeah. they thought it was completely acceptable to take my child by themselves yeah. into the offices, wow. administrative offices. Uh, Sarah, I'm glad you called and and shared that story. I mean, and you're right; it's not exactly the same as what people were experiencing at the southern border but i think the the attitude that you're talking about here the the response to your concerns is one of the things that that seems really really troubling caitlin i wonder if you can shed some light on on this kind of experience and whether uh, there is a more pervasive i guess attitude issue about this kind of thing in 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 the agencies that handle immigration I think what Sarah, your experience reflects is, is another theme I try to get at in the story, which is that, you know, we have not had meaningful immigration reform in the United States in decades. Yes. Congress has not moved to address these issues that we've been talking about, these vast backlogs, um, inequality when it comes to the distribution of visas, you know, the distribution of visas that just frankly does not address our economic needs as a country. And, and it's not, um, you know, giving us access to and giving others access to who want to come to the United States, you know, the opportunities that, that exist um, and sort of maximizing um, the benefit for, for both sides, for the United States and for people hoping to, to move here. Um, you know, our systems are very outdated and, and because Congress has not moved to update them, what it's left to police, it's left to, you know, Immigration and Customs Enforcement and the Border Patrol, which are these two different, very large federal police forces. And so 
the experience of many people, even those who are applying like you, Sarah, for a green card, I don't know if it was an employment-based green card or a family-based green card, is that you feel like you're being treated as a criminal um, because of who you're dealing with. You know, So the law enforcement officers, they have this posture because of the work that they're trained to do. When it comes to the border patrol, you know, I talk in the story about how that agency completely sh shifted in the post 9-11 era. And the new goal became, you know, trying to rid out any terrorism in the United States, trying to prevent another such attack. Um, and even though there has not been any meaningful, you know, apprehension or, or meaningful th threat of terrorism that has been stopped by the Border Patrol, what you have instead is um, run of the mill, you know, my, migration, um, people coming in to seek asylum, people coming in to seek um, you know, with some sort of pre-authorization for, for something like a green card, like Sarah mentioned, you know, ha feeling like they're dealing with somebody who thinks that they're, you know, that they've committed a crime or that they are a threat of terrorism or something like that. You know, this could be an administrative process. It could be one um, that is a, a little bit more humane um, and, you know, that doesn't have this sort of law enforcement, uh, you know, suspect dynamic. Um, but without congressional immigration, or sorry, without congressional reform in this area, it really is left to these police forces to figure it out because they don't get to sort of throw their hands up and say, you know, I'm not going to deal with immigrants today because people are knocking at the American door mm -hmm. um, and somebody has to, to answer and decide whether to let them in or not. And so they've really been left holding the bag when it comes to, you know, way too many people who are waiting in these long and convoluted confusing lines to try to get into the United States because we have a system that just does not serve, you know, the country well and does not serve people seeking to enter it well either. Yeah. So uh, I want to give you a chance to talk a little about what's happening now. Of course, the Biden administration um, reversed a lot of the policies that uh, the, the Trump administration had put in into place. But a bigger question, I think, is how do you repair some of the damage done by policies like these, by the separation policy in particular? What What is the Biden administration doing to reunify children with their parents and how's that going? So right after President Biden um, took office, he signed an executive order forming a task force to try to reunify as many of the families that remain separated as possible. Um, and that seemed to a lot of people as a, as a very good sign. You know, he campaigned really against family separation, talked about how he thought of it as criminal. And so there was a lot of hope and optimism um, among Democrats and, and among Republicans who opposed family separation um, that, you know, the issue was going to be addressed and was going to be rectified. But there's been a lot of disappointment in that space as well. So it's it's really a mixed bag. You know, on the one hand, you do have a few hundred families who have been reunified by that task force that Biden established. Um, but you still have over 700 who have not officially been reunified. And you even have more than 150 children whose parents haven't even been located to this day by the federal government. We don't even know where they are. Um, and so that, I think, speaks to, you know, the fact that this is, there was no easy cleanup available when you implement a policy and you don't keep track of where children and their parents are. And then in more than a thousand cases, you deport parents back to another country. Um, it becomes very difficult as time goes on to try to track those individuals down. Many of them return to very rural parts of the Northern Triangle and Central America, places that don't necessarily have cell service, that People don't necessarily have television. You know, they're not able to listen to this radio program and get information about, you know, how to even get in touch with the American government to try to get their child back. And mm -hmm. so you literally had people riding through these communities on, on motorcycles just trying to track some of these parents down. It gets harder and harder over time. Um, but, you know, it, and the work kind of stops there. And that, I think, has been frustrating for a lot of people advocating on this policy, again, you know, on both sides of the aisle because there is nothing that could prevent, you know, family separation from being implemented on day one of a future Trump administration or an administration that looked like it. I write in the story that there are a lot of people associated with this policy and responsible with this, for this policy who still believe very strongly in its effectiveness, you know, in the face of evidence that the, argues very clearly otherwise, you know, they really believe in separating families. Trump really wanted to re-implement the separation of families throughout the entirety um, of the administration once they were ended. And so there are a lot of people who would come back into office and, and push for this. And 
again, you know, Congress has not legislated to block family separations from taking place in the future. The measures that the Biden administration has taken to, to prevent them now um, can be quickly and easily reversible in the future. And so I think that has a lot of people nervous that this policy could actually come back. Okay. Caitlin Dickerson of The Atlantic was really great to have you here to talk about this issue and uh, about your story in The Atlantic. Thanks so much for joining us on Thank Detroit you. Today. When we come back, we are going to continue to talk about immigration, but we're going to change the subject just a little bit. Talk about where most Americans are thinking uh, right now on the issue of immigration, whether they're for it, whether they think we have the right policies in place. David Beer, Associate Director of Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute, will join us next. Also continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number here. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. The zero tolerance policy was America at its worst and maybe at its most cruel, but it's not what most Americans wanted from their immigration system. Even most conservatives didn't want that policy in place. Recent polling from the Cato Institute, a free market think tank in Washington, shows that most Americans support immigration to the United States, and that support has been growing over the last few decades. But there is a lot of partisan divide over how Democrats and Republicans, for instance, feel about the level and type of immigration we should have. To talk more about where Americans stand on immigration, we've got someone here who looks at this issue a lot. David Beer is the Associate Director of Immigration Studies at Cato. David, welcome to Detroit Today. Thanks for having me on. So let's start with uh, the general picture here. How do most Americans feel about immigrants and immigration, and how has that changed over the past few decades? Well, it's hard to talk about what most Americans want because we're divided into really three camps. There's the camp that says we're pretty much where we should be in terms of the level of immigration. Uh, about 36% in our poll said we want to keep the present level the same. And then we had about 33% who said they wanted less. And then we had about 30% who said we wanted more. <laughs> So that's not, you know, that's, you know, that represents the difficulty of creating a, a national policy when there, it isn't just a binary choice, more or less, but, you know, a gradation of, of not just more or less or the same, but then priorities, you know, even within what you want. Yeah. You know, some people want more family, some people want more skilled immigration. So. Uh, it, it's difficult to speak in broad strokes about what the country as a whole wants. Mm -hmm. uh, One thing that is clear in our polling, and as well as uh, polling from the Gallup uh, polling company, uh, is that support has been rising and that the number who wanted less immigration has fallen dramatically since the 1990s. It was a, a two-thirds support for decreased level of immigration in 1995. Now it's down to less than half that, around 30 percent, so, uh, saying they want less. So I'm curious about how you, and I know you're looking at this over a longer period of time than this, but I'm curious about the ways in which the Trump administration's approach to immigration, which was really different from other uh, administrations, ha has affected uh, Americans' outlook on uh, immigration and whether whether we know that, that, that Americans were we're not in favor of the things that uh, that President Trump was trying to do. Well, certainly the trend continued under the Trump administration. So we saw continued increases in support for increased immigration. We saw declines in people saying they wanted less immigration. That could be partly a result of the fact that they felt like they were getting less immigration 
under the Trump administration than under the prior administration. We've seen a, a little bit of a reversal uh, of that trend under the Biden administration um, as people feel that there are more people coming in. But it's not, you know, it's not enough to reverse, you know, the decades long um, trends on this. So I would say that, you know, on, a, on the whole, if you look at policy by policy, uh, Americans favored some of the policies of the Trump administration. They strongly opposed many of the other ones, uh, including family separation. Mm-hmm. So, it's, again, it's, there's a divide here, and it, it's not a clear-cut answer um, to any of these, these issues. And is the divide just about politics and cultural considerations, or, is, or, or are there also divides, for instance, about about economics and the economic power of immigration, the economic need for immigration. And then from there, you know, do, do you get into um, people favoring certain types of immigration and, and favoring it over, for instance, uh, other types of immigration that don't serve those, those same purposes? Well, actually, you know, our poll found that most Americans, a very strong majority, two-thirds, said that businesses should be able to hire whoever is most qualified, regardless of their nationality. And a similar percentage said they should be allowed to hire foreign workers as needed to fill jobs. So when it comes to the economic need, as long as the economic need is there, uh Americans are willing to welcome them. You know, if they're coming to fill a job and contribute economically, that is the strongest across Republicans, Democrats, independents. That's the strongest basis for immigration in our system. So even people who are saying normally I'd be saying restriction, but, you know, if there's a, a real economic need, I'm I'm here to support that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm willing to support that. Uh, again, on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter, hashtag Detroit Today, and we can get you on the air that way. Kevin in Sterling Heights, you're up next. What's on your mind? Good morning. Hey. I think uh, one of the – as a general principle for politics, we need to start with what we have in common. I think all Americans want – acknowledge that we need some immigration to the United States. And I think all Americans would want that um, any immigrant come here legally. So the, and the, so the question is just how many immigrants we allow each year and then what type. But we need, we need to keep in mind that everybody wants some immigrants, virtually everybody wants some immigrants, and nobody wants um, people have to, to have to come here illegally. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, Kevin, I think that's uh, that's absolutely uh, uh, you know an accurate way of of thinking about the way people uh, sort of digest this issue. It, it's you know it gets more complicated, of course, because of the history of immigration laws in this country and and the way that they have been you know, uh, unevenly applied to, to, to countries and, and, and to people. But, but I, I don't think anybody thinks people should have to come here, um, you know, through, uh, w- through channels that aren't legal. It's just that the, 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 the way things are set up, I mean, it, it, there are a lot of people who don't have the opportunity to come here legally. What, what, what does, uh, David, your, your polling show about this question of legal versus yeah. uh, not legal immigration? Yeah, so there were a couple of interesting questions that we asked uh, that hadn't been asked before about this point. And one of them was, you know, what's the easiest way, in your opinion, to deal with the illegal immigration problem? Build a border wall and increase border security or make it easier to come to the country legally? Fifty-six percent said make it easier to immigrate would be a less costly easier way to deal with the illegal immigration problem. So, mm-hmm. so that really speaks to, you know, the, the point that people, when they come, they do think about a trade-off here. You know, we have people coming in, they're coming in illegally. Is it better to, you know, boost the border security and spend billions on the border wall? Or can we come up with a system that lets people come legally with good reason, you know, to, to reunite with family or to 
uh, fill jobs that are that are open and there's an economic need for. Yeah, I mean that 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 data kind of flies a little in the face of the things that we, I think, might assume the 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 Trump administration. Um, was believed about uh, about Americans. I mean, there was this sense that um, you know, of course, there was a big focus on the border wall, and and this sense that uh, we didn't need to uh, reform immigration in a big sense to make it easier for people to come here. Oh, absolutely. So, I, I most Americans do support a wall or some, at least some wall being built. So it's not as if he was totally out of the mainstream. But the question is, you know, what's easier when you when you pose it as a trade off, people are saying, well, can we come up with a system that, that works? And I think most people are of the opinion, yeah, we can we can come up with a, a way that people can come in an orderly way. and They don't have to cross the border illegally. And we also we asked another question on it. You know, why do people why do Americans think immigrants are coming illegally? And 43 percent said the legal immigration process is way too difficult and expensive Mm -hmm. for them. And and then right after that, 21 percent of them said that that, uh, they're ineligible to apply for legal residence. So about 60 percent of the respondents said either the legal immigration system is too expensive or difficult or they're just ineligible for it. So they understand that a lot of these people who are coming wouldn't be able to apply for anything. So that's why they're coming illegally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, David Beer, Associate Director of Immigration Studies at the Cato Institute. Great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining. Of course. Thank you. That is going to do it for us today. Tune in tomorrow when we're going to have a conversation with scholar Paul Levinson about cell phones, what they are, how they've changed over time, how they're changing us, and why we're still calling them phones when they do so many other things. Can't we come up with a better, more descriptive name? We'll find out tomorrow on Detroit Today. This is 1019 WDETFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.